Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are still in our Reclaim series, and this week we are talking about prayer. Before we get started, the question I have for you all is, how in your life are you deconstructing or reconstructing prayer? Over there who's on duty being support staff is our regular pastor. He's usually the one up here doing a lot of this. And we thank you, Corey, for the opportunity. And we thank all of you for being here as part of the community. Um, so Community Sunday is a different Sunday. And if you don't have a name tag, we are welcoming people to uh, be known by name. So the name tags are a way to identify who you are. And if there's a way you are growing in your identity in Christ, you can put that on your name tag as well. So I'll introduce myself, and any of you that go to 12-step meetings, you'll have a response to this, and you're welcome to respond that way. I am Sissy, and I am beloved. Hi, Sissy. <laughs> uh, and I'm Scott, I'm Scott Kim. Um, and uh, I'll just say, uh, I'm empty. Hi, Hi Scott, you are empty. <laughs> Like, that is a beautiful way to begin our conversation about prayer. Um, that whether we are experiencing ourselves as beloved or... Empty. We are loved. And we are loved just as we are. Um, the story that Jesus told was that all of the commandments are summed up in love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. And I have come to see prayer as really about growing in my being a loving person. And that that's what our conversations with God, the divine, our engagements with each other, our work together as a community is all about growing in healing, maturity, and transformation to be the best humans we can be. Amen? Amen. And so it all comes back to that point of love. And we're loved wherever we are in the journey with prayer, with Bible knowledge, with theology, whatever things we're dealing with in our lives, we're loved there as we are. And so prayer is one of the things that can trip us up along the way, um, because inevitably we get tripped up along the way in our, in our lives as Christians. Things don't work out as we expect. So for me, when it comes to prayer, I grew up in a family where we were Catholic and prayer was uh, going to mass on Sunday reading along in the Missalette. Any Catholics, former Catholics out there? Okay, right? Reading along in the Missalette, you read the bolden parts, uh, the priest does this stuff, and, and then that was one part of prayer. And another part was the rosary. The rosary, anybody, the rosary, yeah? So you say Hail Marys and Our Fathers. So it was very rote and ritual. And that was how I understood prayer. And then, in junior high, I went to an evangelical church camp. How many of you went to an evangelical church camp, right? And, and I was born again, and I invited Jesus into my heart, 
And I came to understand this personal God who loved me. And it was, it was transformative. It was amazing. And when I was praying that prayer, that sinner's prayer with the counselor after the campfire, um, after the prayer, she, she looked me in the face and she said, what do you want God to do for you? And I was like, oh, what do I want God to do for me? It was like, I'd never thought of a God like that. But it introduced me to this whole concept that God cares about my life and I can ask God for help. And so kind of the, the way I've seen that summed up for my life is in this passage from Philippians 4. We all know this passage, right? Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And I needed that kind of a God because my dad had moved out a couple years before. My mom was dealing with substance abuse, uh, alcohol and prescription drugs. My brother, two years older than me, was starting to smoke pot. There was violence in our home between us. Um, and I really didn't feel very heard or understood or met by anybody. So for me, when I had this God come into my life who said, what can I do for you? Do not worry. Instead, pray about everything. It was really amazing. And so it was part of what held me together in a time where I was really falling apart inside. It's what I've come to understand is what I call ego-supportive prayer. As people, as human beings, we go through this developmental journey, and, and especially through our teens and into our young adult years, we're forming an identity, we're forming an ego, we're forming a personality, and we need support in that. And when we don't have human support, like parents that understand us or other adults, God can become this amazing source of love and understanding when we don't feel love and loved and understood by other human beings. And for me, that's really what I experienced in my teenage years with God. And um, I became a very good prayer. I kept prayerless. I went to Westmont College and I, had, I ran the prayer ministries and I was all about verbal prayer and praying for people and Brother Scott's feeling empty, Lord, and we just pray for Brother Scott, that, well, Lord, that you'll fill him up and, you know. <laughs> um, and that was my life and it was powerful medicine for my chaotic, troubled, uh, increasingly substance abusing myself soul. And so I'm grateful uh, that God met me in that place and held me together um, through those times and brought around community that would do that for me and help her get the gift of tongues. And I remember that prayer too. I could tell you stories about all that. And I'm sure you all have your own stories, right? About how people tried to pray for you and are going, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> You about, I can tell you about the lady that when Dave and I were dating, um, I asked for prayer because I was confused. He was divorced. I wanted to get married. He wasn't ready to get married. And this lady at a conference, you know, she, well, Lord, we know you really don't want divorced people to ever get remarried. So help this woman understand. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> anyway, so that's, that's a little of what it was like for me early in my Christian life with prayer. And uh, Scott's going to share a little bit about that. 
So I think that's the fourth week in a row with the F-bomb now. <laughs> my son, uh, my son loves it. <laughs> so first, uh, I, I want to say this is, uh, this is extraordinarily special for me. Um, I've actually spent a, a lot of my adult life in the church hoping for the opportunity to preach someday, and, and now that it's here... Uh, <laughs> now, now that the moment has come, I, I really want to just run away. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the ego in me, which is very real, is telling me, uh, don't screw them up, don't lead them astray. And the awareness in me is saying, all these people are just looking at you, isn't that weird? <laughs> it is really weird. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, ego, supportive prayer, the, the prayer of identity, the prayer of contention, the even the prayer of wrestling with God has been a super important part of my, my life in the church. And, um, and I'll say it's because uh, even from the beginning when I was a kid, uh, even younger than Isaac, um, I experienced a God that was quite different from the one I heard about in church. And up until recently, I'd say that's been the persistent truth of my life in the church. Uh, I remember um, third grade uh, going to communion at my Catholic private school, and the priest thought that I was just another Catholic kid walking in to do his first confession. And I put my hand up and said, I'm not here to confess anything. I just have a question for you. What about all those people in Africa who've never heard the gospel? Are they going to hell? And the priest, uh, he was stunned. I still remember the look on his face. He wasn't uh, prepared to be, uh, you know, interrogated. But he put together some answer that had no conviction. And right away I realized, wow, okay, even the people who are supposed to know the answers don't, don't know. That really did set the foundation for a lot of the, you know, prayer of contention that I engaged in over the rest of my life. Um, you know, God, with this world full of abusive and, uh, you know, terrible domestic relationships, uh, is, is really a loving, mutually respectful relationship between two gay people a problem for you? Um, you know, God, when people who don't hear about you die, do you really delight in the idea of eternally tormenting them for a decision that was not theirs to make? Um, and I think a lot of you here have engaged in this prayer of contention with God. Are you really the God that they say you are, that, has been, uh, that many words have been written about, uh, or are you the God that is good? And I think uh, for a lot of you, the prayer of contention, this ego, supportive, ego, affirmative prayer is what brought you here. And, and what I want to tell you all is that I think in, in the history of the church, there is a healthy tradition of this. Um, and, uh, you know, I think of three, three guys in particular. I think of uh, Moses, I think of Job, uh, and I think of Jonah. And these guys have become very important to me uh, in my recent journeys. I think of Moses on Sinai. You remember that moment after he got the Ten Commandments, it was supposed to be this glorious moment. And then God breaks the bad news. Actually, while you were up here, your people decided to build um, a golden calf because they're not interested in what we're doing up here. And God says, you know, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to create a new people through you. And maybe that'd be a difficult situation for some of you. It certainly was for Moses. Moses said, um, you know, what will the Egyptians say about you if you do that? Wouldn't they say, you brought the Israelites out of Egypt with evil intent? Um, you know, I think of Job. Job was uh, punished severely. Um, 
lost 10 of his children in one day, everything he owned, his body erupted in boils. And yet he knew that somehow this was not fair, nor was this good. And even when his friends were trying to persuade him, there must be a hidden sin or something you have not perceived. Job said, no, this is not right, and I, I need the Lord to explain this to me. And, uh, and we talked to, I think we talked about Jonah a couple times. Jonah, the guy who reluctantly went to Nineveh and uh, through his ministry saved 100,000 people, I think. Uh, but somehow the story of Jonah didn't end with Jonah 3, did it? It ended with Jonah 4, where Jonah says, this is profoundly unfair. Don't you care about justice for Israel? And, you know, the funny thing is in this tradition, God doesn't seem to mind being challenged on his goodness. In fact, uh, with Moses, God relented and spared uh, Israel. Uh, in the case of uh, Job, um, God comes and says, you know, Job said what was true. Job said what was, what was right. And, uh, and with Jonah, there is that beautiful Jonah 4, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, where God says, I'm not finished with this work until I have won you over, until you understand why it is that I saved your enemies. Um, God is keenly interested in being good. I think we forget that sometimes. I, I recently had a, a trip out east where I reconnected with some friends of mine who grew up in the same church tradition that I did, uh, nice tulip, uh, dispensationalist, reformed Presbyterian, whatever. <laughs> and uh, I love how it, invariably the conversations we have around social justice or around a lot of things going on comes down to a single point. Scott, how can you know what's good? Your conscience was distorted by sin. And what's written in the Bible is the only real frame of reference we have for what's good. And you know, in all those conversations I say, my conscience matters. What I view as good matters. And it matters to God too. God wants to be the God of those who believe in a good God. God is proud to call himself the God of those who do good. Um, and so I say this because ego affirmative prayer was important to Sissy at a time in her life. It was important to me as well. In fact, I'll say it helped me uh, to come to grips with the death of my father about a year and a half ago. Uh, I have come to the point in my journey with God where I really do trust God with the fate of my dad who struggled to believe in God and at the end really didn't. Uh, and I know that uh, the Lord received my dad's soul with nothing less than eager anticipation and a desire to comfort him and, and show him the riches of everything he has created. So. So as we journey, uh, prayer is de different things at different times. I think that's probably the big message takeaway. If you don't hear anything else today as we share our stories a little bit more, that, and that this idea of listening deeply within and following our conscience, uh, paying attention to our own experience, is for many of us a very novel concept, right? Because we grew up in traditions where it was all about knowing the Bible, believing the Bible, memorizing the Bible, praying the Bible into your own brain and into other people's lives, and that the authority and the uh, information and the ideas that you or I needed in order to live a successful, good life were out there somewhere, right? Somebody else had the truth, and we could not trust ourselves. 
Anybody else have that experience? And yet, I also had this sense, no, I think there's something else here. Anyone else have that too? Like where you were like somebody, I remember being in a, a Bible study about, I don't know, it was something about creation. And I was saying something about, well, maybe part of the problem is that we've forgotten nature and earth and technology and human development. Maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe that's a sinful thing. I kind of was proposing a novel idea. And I just think the person looked at me like, you know, what do you know about anything? And it was just disregarded. But this idea that I have ideas inside of me that might have value was pretty disregarded. So for all of us, at some point, we have enough of those experiences or we have a major life experience that cracks us open. And, and, and it's probably why we're here at New Abbey. Because you can only live for so long trying to fit into the box and do the right thing and have the right knowledge till you realize, oh, it's so much bigger. It's so much more. So for me, that was when, in 1992, how many of you were even born in 1992? Uh, okay, I have some people that were here. <laughs> what can I say? 1992, I was 30 years old, Dave and I had been married a couple years, and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And up until that point, God had been this protector God that prevented bad things from happening to me. I was doing enough bad things myself, getting into trouble along the way, making choices that I wish I hadn't made, but experiencing God's grace. Fortunately for me, I had a very loving God image from my childhood. As screwed up as my family was, my mom had an out-of-the-box Catholic theology, and I grew up knowing a loving God. And that saved me through the years when I was going out smoking pot and going back to Bible study the next day and going, uh, will somebody pray for me? I keep smoking pot. <laughs> nobody ever recommended a 12-step group. I still don't get it. I'm like, how many times did I ask for prayer? Nobody said, oh, there's a group for people like you. Um, anyway, I diverse. I diverge. Um, so breast cancer blew open my, my, my life around prayer because prayer had been you know, ask and you will receive the ACTS model. How many remember the ACTS model? A adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. There are many other models. Anyone ever have some acronym prayer models? That, that something came into your life and busted it open. So breast cancer at 30. And I remember one morning after the news had set in and I was having my quiet time with God and I was in the living room at our house, and I, I just felt myself, my anger, my sadness, my fear, and my rage at God, like, like Job, like, what the, what the fuck? You know, it was like, this was not supposed to happen. And I was crying out to God with, you know, I'm so upset about this. And, and then I started thinking about all the other people are suffering. I, I was like, God, there's people in my own street probably being abused or molested, and there's children that don't have food. And I was just ranting. And, and I said at the end of this rant, it's all fucked up and I hate it. And I was like surprised because at that point I didn't use fucking my prayers much at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh. And it was like one of those moments, if you believe the box, you were like, I'm gonna get struck dead if I, for that probably. And I, it shocked me out of my emotion. And I, I sat down on the couch, and I realized how tired I was. 
And I heard God. And I'm not one who hears God audibly. I get intuitions and knowings, but very few times in my life I actually heard God. I was quiet and, and still, and my mind was empty. And I heard God say, I hear you, sissy. And I think it's all fucked up, and I hate it too. <laughs> right? And, you know, two things came out of my breast cancer experience. The first was it, it blew open my prayer life. Because I was in a church where we prayed for healings for people, and at that time, you know, over the next course of these next weeks, as I went to prayer services, people were praying, well, Lord, heal her from her breast cancer, and, you know, may she not have to go through this mastectomy. And, and you know, and I was there with them, but I was also like, uh... Uh, what? Like, I don't know. Like, do you not go forward with the surgery because God's going to heal you? Or, you know, it's just, it's really confusing when you're in this world where people, some people get healed, right? I've seen it. Um, Dave had carpal tunnel healed from his hand. And, and it really blew things out because I did end up having to go through with the procedures and do it the regular way. And God didn't strike down and heal me miraculously. So the one thing was it opened up that whole realm of what is prayer, how do I pray, what does it mean to pray for healing for people? You know, it was like, okay, we got to look at these questions because there's not a clear answer here. And the other thing is it set me on this path of healing outside of the Christian tradition. Now, in 1992, yoga was totally fringe in the culture, and it was even more fringe in the church. You know, there was still a time when people thought if you went and did yoga, you were going to get possessed by a demon. I know, you all laugh, right? Because, like, how many people do yoga? But that was the way people thought at that time. And I started doing yoga and going to acupuncture and looking into herbs. And, and people really were, con a few people were concerned about me. Most of my friends trusted me and knew I was a person of good, good discernment. Um, but I went out into these places I'd never been. And then I began exploring Jungian psychology, and I began really looking outside the box. And at that time, I began to realize that God was so much bigger and that healing took place in so many different ways. And I also began to explore the interspiritual realm and looking at how... How, does, how do people throughout history and different traditions get their spiritual needs met? Not so much the theology and the ideology of different religions, but aren't there some core foundational things that human beings just need? And how do we get that need met? And so I began to really explore, and I said to God, you know, God, I don't know if I'm going to be a Christian when I come out of the other end of this exploration, but I trust God, creator, divine, whatever I was calling at the time, enough that I believe I need to follow this path. And ironically, it led me back into a deeper relationship with Christ. Um, as I began to meditate, use centering prayer, if any of you know what centering prayer is, it's a contemplative, meditative Christian practice that has been in the tradition for since the beginning, and it's kind of gotten lost along the way. But it's a being a quiet, a quiet, silent prayer. Um, it's the prayer of uh, Abba Moses, who um, 
one of the, the monks came to him and said, begged him for a word of wisdom that he might grow in his faith. And Abba Moses said, go sit in your cell and it will teach you everything. Uh, this learning to just be with myself, with all my disparate parts, the good, the bad, the ugly, the mean, the kind, and recognize that I'm loved however I am in any given moment, to deepen into that sense of my own belovedness. And that that was what came to me through this journey outside of the box, was learning that there is a way to pray that is even deeper and gives me an even deeper peace than pouring out to my heart, God, heart to God with words. That that's one way of getting peace. But then there's this deeper, contemplative, meditative, still place where when I know I'm loved in that place, a lot of this chatter just kind of dissipates. And really the things that worry me, like I'm still praying for my husband to have a, get a new job, I, I need more clients, whatever. When I'm in that still place of my centering prayer, I, I, I trust. It's this deep knowing that I am going to be okay and it's going to be okay. So that's, that's what happened for me and what shifted me out of that into a broader way of understanding prayer. Let's go ahead and bring up the, the story of the, the sex worker. Uh, you know, we, we actually talked about this um, passage a couple months ago. It stuck with me. Um, and, uh, and I think you all are familiar with the story, uh, a woman in the city who was a sinner having learned that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Let's move on to the next slide. Um, you know, uh, Jesus is challenged on this. Um, you know, did you know how sinful this woman is? And Jesus responds. Um, and you can see what he has to say. We can move on to the next slide. Um, and uh, Jesus says something very uh, interesting. He says, do you see this woman? I think a really interesting moment. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has bathed my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss from the time I came in. She has not stopped kissing my feet. Let's move on to the last slide. Um, then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, um, what um, Sissy has said about her journey into contemplation uh, deeply resonates with me. In fact, I think Sissy is one of the people in this community that has given me the courage to explore my faith at this very strange time uh, in my life. Now, I should say that um, I haven't always been comfortable exploring new things, being, you know, a, an experimenter when it comes to spiritual practice. Um, like many of you, I, I mean, I, I just grew up uh, wanting to please God, wanting to fit in the church. It was, it was very difficult. Um, but, you know, uh, among evangelical Christians, I was a card-carrying member of the evangelical church. I've only, only been with one woman my entire life. Um, I've actually never used uh, an illegal drug. Sometimes I, I can't believe that. Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, it's, I'm actually kind of, I know. I need a support group, right? Although Isaac, I want you to follow my footsteps. Um, 
Yeah, and I, you know, at times in my life, I've been very proud to support the work of the church with, with tithes and offerings, to serve um, as a lay leader. Uh, I've, I've cared so much about this thing that we're creating in the church. But I'll tell you um, that despite all of this, uh, I have suffered. You know, I, I think I hinted at some of the reasons why, because there was such a, a difference between the God that I loved and the God that I heard about and experienced in the church. Um, there was uh, also a contrast between the power and emotion that I would experience in times of worship and the emptiness that I would experience after I left the church and would go into my week. Um, and no one saw this suffering uh, in my life more than my wife, Sandy. And for years, she encouraged me, well, you know, why don't you try meditation? Um, you're, you're full of angst. Uh, there's, there's a lot of emotion uh, that you struggle with. Why don't you try meditation? And my response was always, I know exactly where meditation would take me, and you know, I, I don't want to go there. Um, I was uncomfortable with emptiness. I don't know if that is something that resonates with you guys. For me, emptiness was the place where there wasn't a praise song. There wasn't a word from God. There wasn't an overpowering and emotional sense of purpose. Emptiness, and I wrote that on my name tag here, is the place where the moment avails itself and it seems to have no intrinsic purpose. In fact, through the lens of that moment, nothing I'm doing seems to have any meaning at all. Um, when I engage in meditation at this particular time in my life, and I've been meditating very seriously for five months, I noticed a couple things change right away. Um, I don't experience intense feelings uh, like I used to. Uh, this is probably the most intense moment I've had in the past six months, honestly. Um, I don't suffer like I used to. Um, and I don't pray like I used to either. In fact, I think there was a moment of panic for me about two months into this current season of meditation when I reached out to Billy and Stephanie and I said, guys, I don't know what's happening to my faith, but because I'm not suffering and experiencing intense feelings, I can't pray anymore. I, in fact, I pulled out the Bible and I tried the Lord's Prayer. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Uh, and, you know, as good brothers and sisters do, they, they reached out to me and said, keep going with this. There's truth in, in what you're experiencing. And the story of the, the sex worker with Christ is what brought that truth into focus for me. Um, you know, I think this is a, a woman who did not approach Christ with identity. She did not approach Christ with um, the rules of do's and don'ts, with the power of Scripture behind her, with, with, that, uh, with that conviction that she needed to be seen or heard on account of where she had come from. I think this is the story of a woman who was emptied of identity. It had been taken from her. She had been pushed to the margin. She was probably, as many of us would think of her now, full of bad theology, uh, probably didn't have a really un deep understanding of the, the scriptures or the Torah, probably had been excluded from worship at the synagogue. Most likely her offerings had not been accepted. Um, but remarkably, this is a woman who was aware of many things. She was aware of exactly where Jesus was in the city. She was aware that she had this beautiful gift to give, this alabaster jar of perfume. And she was aware, too, that 
Jesus would enjoy it, the smell, the feel, the moment. And she was aware that in this house full of Pharisees, people who would judge her, Jesus Christ would not judge her. I think it's become for me one of the most important moments in all of Scripture because this is a woman whose idea of God did not prevent her from experiencing God. This is a woman who saw God and responded to Jesus in the way that I would hope all of us would. You know, sometimes I think identity and feeling and theology and, and knowledge get in the way of seeing God at work within us and around us. Our religion gives us the power to judge, most of all, to judge ourselves. But this is a woman who should have felt greatly unworthy on account of all these things and instead had this magical moment with Jesus. And I think it's just wonderful that when Jesus encounters her, he has really nothing to give her. He doesn't heal uh, a sickness. He doesn't restore her place in society. He just recognizes her. It's a moment of mutual awareness. Your faith has already made you well. You know? I think, um, you know, at this season of my life, I'm, I'm recognizing that there was a purpose to the prayer and the spiritual disciplines I once practiced. And I think I can look back at that and recognize the beauty in it. I have discovered the God of Scott, a good God. Uh, but I have also, through meditation, I think, recognized the real power of emptying myself of identity. All that I have thought of myself, all that I have done, past, future, the concepts um, that our scripture is so full of. And to just seek God at work, alive, with us uh, in the moment. So in this moment, what I'm thinking about is... Um, the unworthiness, the shame, the insecurity, the fear that we all feel as humans at times. Um, and that prayer, whatever form it is, is somehow about helping us cope with that inner dissonance, with the feelings, the suffering that is part of life. Um, what we know about brain development is that in order for the brain to fully function at optimal level, there has to be neural integration. And that we have at the back of our brain a survival brain, we have in the middle of our brain an emotional brain, and at the front of our brain we have our executive neocortex brain that holds it all together. And if you think about it, it's like this is your survival brain at the base of your wrist, your thumb is your emotional brain if you put it like this, and the neocortex, the executive brain, is like the front. And life throws things at us that activate our survival and our emotional brain. And if we're not well integrated neurologically, we tend to be reactive. We tend to flip our lids, literally. We lose it. We come undone. And the power of prayer is that we can call upon a God who loves us to help give us an empathy, a sense of feeling felt in that moment where we are undone where we're covered with shame, where we're 
in the midst of our, I don't know who I am, I'm empty. And there are many ways that God can give us a felt sense of belovedness, of it's okay, I'm with you. So a parent for a child looks them in the eye when they're having the tantrum, wraps them in their arms and says, it's going to be okay, let's breathe together. Um, the parent provides an empathetic connection with a child that helps the brain integrate. Now, I didn't get a lot of that. So when I got to junior high, I was like, okay, pot works. And that's worked for me for a lot. And that was part of my struggle is I was trying to medicate and calm that active, reactive brain that I didn't have the neural pathways for. What I discovered through centering prayer and this thing of going into my cell and being, just being, was that there was a quietness and a calmness and a nonverbal way of being with God that was like being held. You know, it's like the baby being held in the mother's, father's arms, the parent's arms. That is just a place of quiet stillness of knowing we're okay and loved. And for me, that may be one way of talking about what contemplative prayer is and what it does for us. But it can be many things for many people. And the, 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 the point of, of, of finding a way to engage with God, with ourselves, that brings us to that place of integration where we can move through our lives in loving, kind ways with ourselves and others and do the best we can. And then when we fall short, when we flip our lids and we wander far from that place, we know we can come back. Um, and I think that's a lot of what prayer is about. So as Mary Oliver said, it doesn't have to be a blue iris. You know, for some people, prayer may be walking in the forest. For some people, prayer may be riding your bike. It may be painting your house. It may be building something in your garage. Um, it's what brings us into that centered, focused, calm zone. Uh, the positive psychology people talk about the zone. Um, and I think the invitation that we want to open up to the community um, is, Rumi said it this way. He said, let the beauty that we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. What's your way? You know, what's your way of coming into that place of calm, centered, peaceful, ease, that you feel like it's okay to be you, whether you're beloved sissy or empty Scott or whatever your name tag says. Um, and so when we think outside of the box about prayer, it's really that invitation is to kind of look at what it is that does that for you and helps you feel, ah, it's going to be okay. I'm all right in this moment. So we invite you to have a conversation about that. And the question that we're going to invite you to look at is, why do you pray? Ah, a small question, as Corey always says. So please find uh, a few people. And uh, why do you pray?
Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.